0: The subject of the talk tonight is the sources of happiness. The whole point of the teachings of the Buddha was for us to find happiness. Although he often talked about it in terms of the end of suffering, the outcome is the same. So however you want to language it, the outcome is the same. The Buddha often used this kind of negative language in his teaching and so the end of suffering is uh, consistent with his terminology but he also used a lot of very positive expressions for different kinds of happiness in the pali i'll just mention a few pali words and their sense in english Uh, one word he often used was sukha i really like this word because it sounds a lot like sugar you know and it has that kind of sweetness Um, which means uh, alternately happiness or pleasure. I think of it as a quiet kind of contentment. The word piti, which many of you are familiar with, refers to a happiness specifically that's associated with meditation. There's a kind of delight when you really connect well with your meditation focus, whether it's the breath, the body, a mood and you're really present with it and meeting it with a fullness of attention, there's a delight, a meditative delight in that. The word Ananda means bliss, and it's used in a lot of names. The Buddha's attendant was named Ananda. You see it a lot in uh, monks and nuns' names in Asia. My preceptor was uh, the Venerable Panyananda, the bliss of wisdom. The word pamoja means joy. It's one of the factors in what's called transcendent, dependent arising, the increase in joy. Somanasa means a gladness of mind. I believe it's mentioned in the Satipatthana in a few places. And one contemporary scholar and commentator named Venerable Analayo wrote a wonderful book called Satipatthana, a book-length exposition of the Satipatthana Sutta put it this way. The entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. So really that's what we're here to do. We're here to refine the sense of joy and happiness that we experience both in our retreat life and in our daily life. That's what the path is about. This summer I was sitting with a Buddhist teacher uh, who is a monk, and I decided not to name him because I want to be able to speak freely about him uh, based on my own suppositions. And I may or may not be right, so I don't kind of want to taint his name with my projections. And I also don't want to create a lot of expectations in you. There's nothing worse than being told somebody's a fantastic teacher, and then you meet them, you go, oh, what a disappointment. So I'm not going to share his name, and that will enable me to speak a little more freely about him. But in spending time with him, listening to his uh, teachings, being around him a little bit uh, personally outside the formal teaching role, I was really struck by his happiness degree of contentment and joy. And that's not a purely subjective impression because he'd been through those machines at Madison, you know, the University of Wisconsin, does these MRI tests on uh, the scans of people's brains. And his happiness quotient in the brain scan was kind of off the chart. (laughs) So he had been coined by some there as the happiest person in the world. But they haven't tested everybody yet, even at Madison, so we won't call him that for sure. But as I, um, as I just observed him through a lot of different situations, I watched how this happiness had uh, kind of different facets. If he was not called on to do anything, it wasn't like he was always bubbling over with some kind of cheerful, smiling delight. Often if he wasn't interactive, he'd be very quiet, peaceful, very low-key, and you could sort of just overlook his presence. If he was in a room with people, he wasn't called on to do anything very simple and modest and humble. But when he taught, and often when he interacted, he was really playful. And he'd break into smiles and laughter very easily, and it was very contagious. So being around him for a while, one tended to uh, soak up that happiness through his, through his manifestation of it. But he, he was quite charismatic also. And as I spent the time around him, I started to wonder, where did his happiness come from? Because I wanted some <laughs> also. And I thought, if he developed it, that means any of us could develop it. To that extent. That's one of the promises of the path. And as I reflected on it, it seemed to me that in the teaching of the Buddha, there are basically five avenues or five means to developing happiness. And I kind of reflected on each of them in relation to him as I observed him and listened to him teach. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, is these five sources of happiness in the teachings of the Buddha. But first I want to say, why is this of interest to us? Well, because happiness is the destination of the path. It's something that I think we're all interested in. Once we learn what the causes of it are, then we know how to create it for ourselves. Happiness is a mental factor like any other. It's a conditioned state that arises based on prior causes and conditions and comes into being when those conditions are right. It's very scientific. So if we go through the steps to prepare the mind for happiness, happiness is the inevitable result. This is not a whimsical thing. It's not a random thing. It's not an elusive thing. As it often feels in Western literature, it's really hard to figure out in Western life why some people are happy and some are not. But in the Buddhist teachings, it's very, you might say, predictable. Now, of course, we're all starting from a different point. And so it's not easy to predict, it's not possible to predict the timing of the development of happiness in anyone's practice. But the eventual outcome, if we persist, is inevitable. And that's one of the things that I love about the Buddha's teachings. There are very predictable ways for us to get where we want to go. Happiness in its various gradations are points along this route. And if we know the causes, we know how to reach that destination. So, in my understanding of the Buddha's teachings, there are five avenues to happiness. Each one is kind of a set of practices. Again, it's not random. It's something that we can practice and develop. Four of them can be taken to a lot of depth. You could almost say uh, unlimited depth of development in four. And one of them is always going to be shallow and superficial. So, we don't worry as much about that one. But it's available also. And the other thing I want to say is this is just in our tradition of uh, Theravadan Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list of the ways to happiness. I looked up the word happiness on Amazon just this evening, and there, uh, the response came back of 18,000 books. Dealing with happiness. So there are a lot of other ideas out there. The Buddha's list is not exhaustive, but it is reliable. So just you know, just to name some of the others that are common in our culture. Um, psychotherapy. Exercise. There's a new uh, formulation of exercise that some of our friends are into. It's called the happy body. I don't know if you've heard of that one. There's a whole system to make the body happy. That makes the mind happy, too. Uh, developing creativity, spending time in nature, and I'm sure you all have your own lists as well. The five that I'm going to talk about tonight from our tradition are sense pleasures, merit, concentration, insight, and awakening. And I'll talk about each one a little bit as we go in the order that I gave them, each one is a a progressively more refined, more reliable and more satisfying form of happiness. So I'll talk about them in that order. The other thing to say about all five of these avenues is that they rest on a common understanding in the Buddhist tradition of what constitutes genuine happiness. And that is that the forces in the mind of greed, aversion and delusion are uh, reduced and eventually absent. So this is the sense of when we say in our practice that the mind becomes more pure, we mean something pretty precise by this, which is that greed, aversion, and delusion decline over the course of our Dharma practice. So I'll talk about how each one of these contributes to that uh, sense of decline. So the first one is sense pleasures. This is from the Buddha talking to his attendant. Ananda, there are these five chords of sense pleasure. What five? Forms, which is a synonym for sights. Often when the Buddha says form, also means sights. Cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. Isn't that nice to think of all the sights in the world that have that combination of qualities? Sounds cognizable by the ear that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. Odors cognizable by the nose, tastes cognizable by the tongue, sensations cognizable by the body similarly. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on these, that is called sensual pleasure. And what came to my mind when I read this was a trip that Sally and I took to a museum in San Francisco. The de Young Museum in Golden Gate Park was showing this uh, quite wonderful exhibition of Impressionist paintings. The Musée d'Orsay in Paris was undergoing a renovation and so they were lending out Uh, quite a large body of their works, and they're doing it in two stages. So the first stage was, uh, I think, called the birth of Impressionism. So it was the early stages of Impressionism and leading into the more mature, and as the exhibit went on, it moved through time, and you saw Impressionism develop from the early paintings by Manet and Degas, which were really more realistic, into the later paintings by Renoir and Monet that got much more just plays of light and color. And as we walked through the exhibit, the further we got and the more kind of impressionistic the paintings got, the smile on my face was just growing and growing. I wasn't even thinking about it, but as I was looking at the beauty of these Monets and Renoirs and Pissarros, I just got this sense of joy and the smile just started to grow. Until I noticed it, then I became a little self-conscious. But it really is a delight to see beautiful things, to hear beautiful music, like a, a symphony and concert. I thought if an alien came to this planet and wanted to see the, the kind of the greatest thing that Western culture had produced, I would take them to a symphony hall and let them hear a concert of something like Beethoven's Fifth. And, you know, the interplay of all the instruments and the harmony is just magical. So we can have very high degrees of pleasure and bliss and joy in exposure to these, the pleasures of the, of the five senses. And this is a natural part of life for lay people. When you think rather longingly about your life outside, I bet it's the sense pleasures that you're thinking of having a good meal with friends, you know, enjoying your favorite latte, making love, listening to your favorite music at home or driving in your car. These are the things that make our lay lives delightful in, in many small moments. They kind of make uh, moments of uplift through these pleasurable experiences through the five physical senses. When we come into this environment, as I mentioned in my previous talk, one of the sorrows of this life is the loss of those kinds of pleasures. And we feel that for a while until we adjust. And then the joys of the renunciate life tend to make us not worry so much about that part. Now I'm sure you've heard that in the Buddha's teachings there are lots of warnings about the dangers of sense pleasures. Generally in Buddhism, sense pleasures get a bad rap. I'm sure you've tuned into that. Here's a classical statement from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial. And the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, knowledge, which leads to peace, to enlightenment, to nibbana. But notice the preface on this, for one who has gone forth into homelessness. That is, the teachings warning about sense pleasures are mostly given to monastics. People whose whole lifestyle is giving up access to sense pleasures. That's the foundation of the renunciate life. It's also a foundation for our life here. So, you know, we don't make the pursuit of sense pleasures a big part of your being here. And it's not highly recommended. It tends to distract the mind from our essential concern, which is observing the mind and its movements. In other suttas, the Buddha compares sense pleasures to a dry bone, because ultimately there's not real meat or sustenance there, to a dream, because they're so fleeting that they can almost seem illusory, and not not so worth pursuing. But it would be wrong To believe that the Buddha condemned sense pleasures for lay people? He didn't. In fact, in one sutta he said that one enjoying sense pleasures may be praised if the wealth that they depend on has been acquired lawfully and is shared to make oneself and others happy. So there's this kind of link between sense pleasures and wealth, which is logical if you think about it a lot of sense pleasures cost money. So the Buddha was making that that link. It's what we use as lay people. We use money and we enjoy sense pleasures. But of course we all know that sense pleasures are not the final word. They're a limited kind of happiness. They're uh, temporary. They come and go and their satisfaction is transient. It's good for a bit, but it ends very quickly. I remember um, Sally and I were eating lunch one day this summer at our kitchen table. And we had uh, homemade chocolate chip cookies. And I was eating one of these sort of fresh out of the oven chocolate chip cookies. And I remember saying to her, you know, it's really hard to be unhappy eating a fresh chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) But then the problem is it ends so quickly. You know, The cookie is gone. And so the Buddha continued in this same statement where he talked about sense pleasures and the joy that arises based on them. He continued telling Ananda this. Though some may say this, that is sense pleasures, this is the supreme pleasure and joy that beings experience, I would not concede this to them. Why is that? Because there's another kind of happiness more excellent and sublime than that happiness. So then we move on to the, um, we'll take a look at this next kind of happiness, which is a higher level. So I just want to mention that when I reflected on the enjoyment of sense pleasures in relationship to this teacher that I mentioned, as a monk, Uh, sense pleasures didn't didn't make up a huge part of his life. All I really saw was that he enjoyed some meals, but he seemed to enjoy every meal equally. Whatever he was served, he seemed to eat it with an equal degree of happiness or equanimity. So I didn't see any particular preference or craving, and it wasn't a big deal for him. So for him, sense pleasures were not a big component, for us they're they're a bigger component in our daily life. The second of the avenues, the second of the sources, is a word that um, has a little bit of ambivalence among Westerners. That word is merit. It's a translation of the Pali word punya, and it basically means uh, wholesome action or skillful action. But this term merit, I don't know. It's kind of tied up with merit badges, and maybe with the idea of you know you bring an apple and put it on your high school teacher's desk, and then you're, you know, then you're a good kid or a good student. There's something a little too goody-goody about the word, and a lot of us don't feel comfortable with it. Unfortunately, there's not another word that's in common use to translate the term, so I'm going to use this word merit. You'll read it a lot in Buddhist teachings. And if you just think of it as skillful action, hopefully that will take some of the weird vibration away from it. But I'll continue to use the word merit. The understanding is that when we engage in skillful action, it brings positive results back into our life. Some of these results may be experienced on the physical level, some of them may be experienced on the mental or emotional level. But at any rate, the results tend to lead to happiness. And this is the basic law of karma. One of the quotations I think has been mentioned a couple of times is this opening of the Dhammapada. All states come from mind, are preceded by mind, are ruled by mind. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. This is the sense of merit that when we act from a purity of mind, happiness and good results come back into our life. Now, I think it's really interesting to take in that understanding. If you understand karma in this way, and if you have a degree of faith in it, you start to realize that this provides the the lever, you could say, or the engine for us to build happiness into our lives. We can control, to some degree, the future outcome of our life by looking at the intention that we act upon now. And if we make an effort, if we make a practice, if we make a regular practice out of doing things from a beautiful or wholesome intention, that lays the groundwork for happiness coming back into our life on both a physical or material level and also an emotional or mental level. So this understanding of karma starts to give us a certain degree of of power around our life and take away some of the seeming randomness of it. This concept of merit is what most lay Buddhists in Asia practice for. Most most lay people in countries like Thailand and Burma don't do a lot of the kind of meditation that we're doing here. Some do, but the majority of Buddhists don't go into intensive retreat in the way that you're doing it. Rather, they feel that their happiness will be generated by an ongoing series of wholesome actions. And so that's what they structure their relationship to Buddhism around, offering food at the temple to the monks or to the nuns, making prayers, developing in, in loving kindness, observing the five precepts or the eight precepts. This is considered, uh, in Asia, and the roots are in the Buddhist teachings, this is considered a good lay path. Someone following this course of things is considered to be carrying out a good path of lay practice. Now, because we have a foot in both worlds, I think it's really great if we undertake both kind of the monastic practices, which I'll talk about a little later based on insight and concentration, and also the lay practices that are based upon carrying out of wholesome action. This is a teaching that we have um, not always stressed over the years of the Dharma being in the West, but I think it's a really, really important one for us who live most of our lives in the lay world, so I want to talk about it a little bit. The Buddha said that there are, I'll describe the, the quotation that he used, there are these streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, Nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable, to one's welfare and happiness. So part of the understanding of merit is that it is, it is the development of merit, a lot of wholesome action, that leads to your realizing your aspiration. What, it leads to whatever is wished for. And because different people have different aspirations, the outcome of the wholesome action can be different depending on what the person's heartfelt aspiration is. If your heartfelt aspiration is liberation, this practice of merit will conduce to liberation. If your aspiration is simply to live more comfortably in the world with more prosperity or health or ease, then the development of wholesome action can lead in that direction as well. So the Buddha talked about three particular practices which are the basis of this kind of um, wholesome action. The basis of happiness for lay practitioners and they are generosity, virtue, or integrity, and what's called a bhavana or mental development. So The Pali terms for these three are dhana, sila, bhavana. Generosity, virtue, mental development. So I'll just talk about each of them really briefly. Generosity is a a huge part of the Buddhist teachings for lay people. It's the first of the ten paramis, so in some ways it's considered the foundation for developing the qualities that bring one to awakening. Generosity is a very powerful practice because it cuts across the assumed separation between ourselves and others. Generosity is about tuning into someone else as a being, you know, like ourselves, who has happiness, unhappiness, wants, and needs, and wants to take care to satisfy the other person's needs, the same way we take care of our own needs. So the act of generosity is kind of based on seeing through this assumed duality, through the the force of empathy, feeling what another feels, and then acting in a way to share, which also breaks down the assumed division or separation. When we have an understanding of non-separateness with one another, and then we act based on that, the action in a way plants that truth of non-separation in a deeper place in our heart, our mind, and also in our, our karmic stream. So it's a wonderful thing to carry out acts that bridge the divide between ourselves and other beings, human beings, animal beings, any other beings that you may feel. And we notice something of that in the joy we feel in giving. You know, when you think about a time that you've given freely, not because you had to, you know, it wasn't your uncle's birthday coming up or something, but it was just a freely given gift, there's a lot of joy in thinking about making that gift, feeling into what would make the other person happy. And then when you find the right gift, there's a lot of joy in offering it. You know, it just, it feels beautiful. And when you reflect on it afterwards, there's a lot of joy in thinking about the gift, the person's receiving it, and the happiness that hopefully it brought to them. (coughs) So you can kind of feel how this happiness builds from the act of giving. And you also understand that it leaves a, a karmic imprint that will bear good fruit in the future also. One of the great things about being around uh, the Dharma for long is you meet people doing extraordinarily generous things. Of course, uh, you know, a lot of you are devoting your lives to serving others, and it's always inspiring to meet people on retreat who serve in this way, serve at Dharma centers, serve as nurses or therapists, um, serve as teachers in school, caregivers to parents, aging parents parents to young children. So many people I meet in the Dharma have based their life around giving of their time and their energy and their skill. And it's beautiful to be in the presence of that. So I was um, teaching a retreat in New Mexico one time and I was driving in the car on the way home with this woman who had recently returned from Thailand She had gone to Thailand a relatively wealthy person. She had worked as a management consultant for many years and built up savings, invested in some real estate and some different properties, went to Thailand with the intention to give it all away and to retire to to live in a monastery or nunnery. So she got to Thailand and she made connections with different, different places, both monasteries and nunneries. And while there, she sold her properties in the States and channeled her money to give to these different places that she'd visited that she wanted to support. She sold all her properties except one and just gave the money away. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars that she gave away. And she moved into one of the monasteries or nunnery, I can't remember which, and got sick. And she could no longer really practice. She needed to return to the States to look after her health. She only had one property left. She came back, sold that, got enough money to live on for a while, look after her health, went back into her job as a management consultant. The beautiful thing was she had no regrets. She'd given away almost everything she owned to support the Dharma. And she had no regrets about it. And I just know that the fruit of that giving was going to enrich her for years to come. Very inspiring. That's Donna. Sila, or integrity, or virtue, Sky talked about a lot in her talk uh, earlier this week, so I won't go into that in a lot of detail. I'll just mention uh, one thing that Sky said, and just to kind of repeat that, When we observe our sila closely, keeping the spirit of of non-harming and really conscientious with that, we're also giving a gift in that observance. The Buddha said, what we give to countless beings is freedom from fear, and that's a wonderful thing. When you know somebody who has really good sila, there's there's a real feeling of trust in that person it makes it very safe to be around them. And you can feel that atmosphere influencing the other people who come into their orbit so that those people create kind of a zone of safety. And the people who move in that zone are all uh, receiving this gift of fearlessness. It makes a safe place for countless beings. In terms of the benefit of observing Uh, this kind of integrity closely, the Buddha said that it brings a certain kind of happiness, which he called the bliss of blamelessness. When we know that for a long time, we really haven't harmed another being intentionally, there's a wonderful feeling of uh, relief that's there, a kind of lack of guilt or uh, inner pressure or regret or uneasy conscience. A real feeling of uh, purity and ease. The Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. That's the fruit, a fruit of integrity. And this third word, dana, sila, bhavana, is very interesting. Bhava means uh, being or existence or becoming. So bhavana means bringing into being. It's a synonym sometimes for uh, meditation. Common translation is mental development. And I love this sense that we are bringing into being our own hearts and minds. That's really the sense of bhavana, that we learn how to shape our heart and mind in a beautiful direction. The French poet Paul Valéry kept a series of notebooks that became his spiritual practice at a certain point. I think he didn't publish them during his life. They were published posthumously. But he wrote for one or two hours every morning in these personal notebooks, which were kind of a diary of his inner exploration. He'd write on a lot of different themes. It wasn't poetry. It was just reflecting on a lot of the things that he read. And his own understanding of it, it it was his spiritual practice. And he said of it, other people write books. I am making my mind. But that's what we're doing here. We're making our minds, step by step, moment by moment. We're fashioning what's in here. When the Buddha talked about bhavana as a form of merit or wholesome action, he tended to talk about it in terms specifically of developing uh, the practice of loving kindness. So in terms of merit, the sense is um, something that lay people, people in daily life, can easily access and build. The sense of loving kindness, compassion, connection, you could put gratitude in that. And the other quality that he talked about often was the development of faith. So in this Dhanasila-Bhavana combination, I think of it as kind of developing loving kindness and faith. And when faith is strong, uh, life goes more easily. Practice goes more easily. This is not an exclusively Buddhist law, as you, know, you must know. Think about people you know in your life who you feel are truly happy and just run over your acquaintances, see who comes to mind among the people that you know, who you feel are happy, and take a look at their lives and see if they aren't characterized by generosity, integrity, and some degree of loving-kindness. You could say that these are the the requisites for normal human happiness. Not happiness that even conceives of a spiritual path, but just this is kind of what it is to be a good person in the world, in human society, across cultures, across religions, across any part of the globe. You'll find these people, generosity, integrity, loving kindness. It, what, what, that's what makes for a normal, happy human life as we develop these three in our lay life, we also will be generating the conditions for a normal, happy life. I think it's interesting, just one final note, what all three of these have in common is they're all based on empathy and caring for others. And that's so interesting to me that the basis of a happy human life is caring for others and then expressing that. When I thought about this in relation to the, the teacher that I was with, the connection was, was very apparent. Um, his conduct was very, very uh, blameless. I'd never seen him do anything that would in any way give offense to someone. very gentle uh, person spoke kindly when he, when he spoke, Of course, he was practicing a lot of precepts, but you could just feel there was a genuine intention of kindness and compassion um, behind them. The next of the avenues to happiness is concentration, the third, after sense pleasures and merit. And concentration, now we're getting into the realm of what you're doing on this retreat. So this is something special This is not something that a lot of people in normal daily lives have access to or are able to develop strongly. But it's one of the key things that we're doing here. Concentration is the common translation of the Pali word samadhi. It really refers to a mind that has uh, gathered itself into the present moment. That has become, as Carol said the other night, one pointed in its awareness of the present moment. This gathering into the present moment brings a lot of strength to the mind. Normally, in our daily life, we're distracted by past thoughts, by future thoughts, by what we have to do next, by running here and there. In this situation, because our our activities become so simple, enables us more and more to gather our full attention and put it into just this moment. When that happens, you'll feel it. You'll feel the mind really collect upon the breath or body or sound in a very wholehearted way. And then we find the mind has a lot of strength. When the mind collects in this way, it becomes uh, still, and you can feel a little bit in that place. It's hard to shake it. You know, when the mind's distracted, any little sound might throw us off or start us down a a path of thought and papancha. When the mind really comes together in this way, it acquires a strength that lets it stay connected to the present moment, and that brings a sense of stillness and peace and well-being. So this unification of mind, the strengthening of mind, brings with it automatically A sense of well-being. If you look back over some of your um, fondest memories in meditation or what you might say are some of the happiest moments that you've had, I bet they'll exhibit this factor of concentration. This is one of the things that put the Dharma hook in me and made me keep coming back because I tasted some peace through meditation i'd never felt before and i kept coming back because i wondered wow if a little bit feels like that what would a little more feel like so this cultivation of peace brought me back again and again one of the things that's so satisfying about this state of concentration is that when it's strong the hindrances don't arise. This is one of the hallmarks of strong concentration. The hindrances are temporarily at bay. They haven't gone away for good, but these movements of liking and disliking and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt have temporarily gone away. The mind then feels a certain kind of freedom it's a beautiful experience not to be assaulted by these crazy movements of our own mind. So it's said that this state is a state of some seclusion. We're not only secluded from outer distraction, but we're secluded from the impact of our own kilesas to a large extent. And that's part of the, the beauty and delight. The concentration can develop further into these states called jhana, which are described as absorption states of concentration. This is the Buddha's description of the first of the jhanas. There are seven states beyond this, but this is the first one. The meditator enters and abides in the first jhana with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. She makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, fill, steep, and pervade her body, so that there is no part of her whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure. The development of this kind of uh, joy and pleasure in meditation of course reinforces our ability to stay present because now the present moment experience is satisfying in itself. So this concentration enables the mind to just relax into its own nature, or let's say its own experience of the moment. That's a better way to say it. And so it, it can become a little bit self-supporting because the mind's not being drawn out through uh, likes and dislikes, through wants. And one of the other things that happened as the mind comes to settle into itself more and more is that the body also starts to settle I think for most of us in the West, we've grown up in a very busy culture, and our body reflects that. When we come to meditation, often we've picked up the energy of the fast-paced society that we're in the middle of. And I know I often felt in the early years of practice that that energy was vibrating my body and was kind of rising up, was coming into the head a lot, and it was hard for me to settle in a relaxed way lower into my body because I felt I was just still reeling from all the busyness that my life had picked up and especially if there's any any injury, trauma, deep hurt, that kind of buzzy energy gets uh, even stronger. So a lot of what happens as we calm the mind in meditation is the body also calms and lets go of that unnecessary, kind of frantic energy that's so prevalent outside. And sometimes it can take a long time for that calming to happen, but it's part of the natural process, and when the body does start to calm, it's much simpler for the mind to rest because it's not meeting the jangly energy in the body. The practices that you're doing, the practices uh, that we've been instructing in the mornings, all develop this quality of concentration and samadhi. You don't need to do anything differently. Sometimes people want to develop uh, concentration very strongly and go in a particular direction. And a few people on the retreat may end up doing that. But for most of you, the practices that you are doing through the Vipassana instructions will lead you to deeper and deeper concentration as you go through the retreat and that will be sufficient. The next of the avenues is insight. This is basically the growth of wisdom or understanding. This is what all our uh, instructions are pointing to. This is what most of the evening talks will be pointing to. This is really what the retreat is structured around. I don't have to talk about this a lot tonight. I know you're very familiar with this ground. I'll just kind of recap. Insight is really around, the most important thing, is understanding what is it that we do with our minds that leads to suffering? And what can we do through our minds that leads to the end of suffering or to happiness? This is what we're here to understand. The Buddhist formulation of this question Came in two or three different uh, main paradigms. The first, probably most important, is the Four Noble Truths to understand suffering, its cause, its end, and the path to its end. So, in this, we spend, I'd say, most of our time on the second and third Noble Truths. How do we understand the rising of craving, which is the source of suffering, and how do we release that craving? to come to the at least temporary end of craving and to that place of freedom. So this is really the crux of our meditation practice. If we're caught in something, there's some kind of craving at work, how do we release that and return the mind to a place of freedom, relative freedom, ease, relaxation, well-being? There's a central investigation that goes on through the Four Noble Truths. Another insight that's commonly talked about is the insight into the three characteristics, the understanding of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. But these insights are very closely related to the Four Noble Truths. As we understand that everything is in the process of change, we don't tend to hang on or to grasp as much. So we move through life more easily, letting things come as they come and letting things go as they go. As we learn to let things come as they come and go as they go, there's less clinging and so there's less suffering. So we we learn not to hold on and then the craving, clinging doesn't arise so much in the first place. And the third place the Buddha talks about it is, the, is just the direct looking at clinging or grasping. So we learn to notice when there's clinging in the mind through some form of contraction, either through liking or disliking, and how to release that. So all these insights are around the same core issue. How do we get caught? How do we release? How does the mind get stuck? How does the mind release itself? The understanding of not-self is so helpful in that because we start to understand that all the different phenomena that come along are not really commentaries on me, myself, or I. Everything arises according to its own causes and conditions. Everything passes away according to its own causes and conditions. This kind of understanding seeps in gradually through our practice, but it has a deep, and lasting impact. I have a friend who's an old student of meditation, uh, was interested in coming to a a longer retreat next year, and emailed actually a few of us here with uh, reports of difficult health condition. He's about my age. His body is starting to break down in different ways. And he said, you know, I don't know. This may be the last long retreat that I may be able to come on. He's somebody who's come on long retreats for many, many years with us. And he said, but um, you don't need to feel feel badly for me. He said, I know I'm not this body. So even in the midst of that health crisis, even in the midst of seeing the end of his life kind of on the horizon, you don't need to feel badly for me. I know I'm not this body. So there's a lot of freedom and lightness when we let those truths of not me, not mine, not I, let those in and let them grow slowly, slowly. When I reflect on the teacher that I was with this summer, one of the things that was uh, kind of most enjoyable about watching him was watching the kind of lightness that he approached everything with. I just didn't see stickiness or grabbiness in his mind. He was someone who really seemed to have understood the, the fleeting nature of everything in this world. And he wasn't getting too caught up in any of it that, that I could see. And the fifth, uh, last avenue to happiness is awakening. You could say that this is another form of insight, but because it's an insight on a a deeper level, I put it in a little different category, put it in its own category, awakening or enlightenment. And that is a pointer to the realization that it's our human potential through meditation practice to be able to discover a peace that's beyond time. Beyond conditions, beyond change. That there's a dimension within us that has this kind of absolute purity. It cannot be corrupted or uh, made imperfect by anything, no matter what happens to us. The discovery of this, whenever it happens in practice, is at least one stage. Of the awakening process, and this discovery gives us a truly unshakable faith in the end of suffering as a possibility for ourselves. We know it because we've experienced it directly. Nothing can take away that knowledge, nothing can take away that faith. In addition, so that gives a certain amount of confidence in life, certainly a confidence in the the path, the teachings. And that realization, when it happens, takes out some of what are called the fetters in the heart and mind, takes out some of the very structural elements that lead the mind into suffering. They can be removed once and for all. This happens, it's said, in different stages. So different fetters come out at different points in the journey. But ultimately, the Buddha said, all the tendencies of mind that can possibly lead us into suffering, that means all the forms of greed, aversion, and delusion can be taken out of the mind. So that there's no longer any potential for suffering to arise in the mind stream. This, the Buddha said, was the highest happiness. The Buddha said that the happiness of sense pleasures were not one-sixteenth of the happiness of this kind of awakening. And it's hard to imagine what that would be like because we're buffeted every day as we live, as we sit, as we practice. We're buffeted by these forces in our own hearts and minds, the forces of wanting, of not wanting, of not seeing clearly. This is our normal human life. And to come to a place where we knew that those forces could not come again to harm us, to injure us, what a relief, what a blessing, what happiness. So in closing, I just want to mention that uh, this monk, who seemed to know what he was talking about, said that the main cause for this kind of freedom is happiness. That is, the development of sense pleasures in moderation, of merit, of generosity, virtue, cultivating the heart, of concentration and discovering an an inner peace, even if it is conditional, of the growth in wisdom through understanding clinging and its release, the happiness from all those sources then become the main cause for liberation. So as we practice all the different avenues to happiness, if we practice them all, then they all channel to this possibility, a real human possibility, of awakening and the final end of suffering. So let's just sit for a minute together, please.